Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and I appreciate you joining us for this episode. Right now, Afghanistan is the story that seemingly will not go away. As the Taliban has taken over the country, bitter recriminations are being tossed around the U.S., the U.K., and elsewhere. In point of fact, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair has castigated U.S. President Joe Biden for deciding to pull out the troops. In other words, to follow up on exactly what Donald Trump wanted to do when he signed that agreement with the Taliban. Blair says it was unnecessary. Whose fault is it that the Taliban swept into Kabul, the capital, with such ease, confounding those who were saying it would take three to six months? Is Joe Biden at fault for not paying attention? Was it Donald Trump's fault for signing a flimsy peace deal that had no enforcement mechanism. None of the above, all of the above, Obama, Bush. To the people desperately trying to flee Kabul, it may not matter. Fact is, there's plenty of blame to pass around, and a lot of it is partisan foolishness. The facts are as follows. There are still American and allied staff on the ground, unable to leave the country. The Taliban, moderate assurances notwithstanding, are reportedly going house to house, looking for collaborators with the previous regime. That thirst for vengeance, however, may not last too long. The Taliban are facing daunting challenges that weapons and bloodlust will not solve. They are reportedly seeking out Afghan civil servants, the backbone of actually running the country, in an effort to get them to come to work. You can, after all, take a city by force, but you cannot govern by force. They are also facing difficulties accessing money. The country's foreign bank accounts have been frozen, and threatening bankers with rifles rarely accomplishes much. Even if they can get civil servants to come to work, how are these people going to get paid? They may also have to consider this. Many of those fleeing the country to the U.S., Britain, Germany, etc., possess the very skills that the Taliban need to fix the electric grid, staff healthcare centers and hospitals, operate schools, the very basic stuff needed to make a country function. Right now, there even seems to be some confusion as to just who is in charge. Again, they say they plan to allow women more freedoms than they had in their previous incarnation. I'm not sure I'm buying it. Media outlets are closing up shop and coming home. They're increasingly relying on stringers who report from the ground or even from neighboring countries. Once the spotlights are turned off and the last cameraman has left, the Taliban will feel emboldened. America and its allies will move on. In the minds of many Americans, the people of Afghanistan, those left behind, will be forgotten. Of course, to the extent people do remember, it will be, as I mentioned earlier, all about partisan finger-pointing. Lost in all that is whether and on what level the U.S. and its allies will engage with the Taliban as leaders of Afghanistan. One thing is for sure. Our latest experiment in nation-building has ended the same way some in our recent past have. That is, in failure. Will we learn from this? and avoid yet another attempt at molding a foreign country in our image? We'll see. Right now, as people still struggle to get on U.S. or allied planes to get out of Afghanistan, 
President Biden is addressing the problems causing the delays in the evacuation. In fact, the Defense Secretary has ordered commercial U.S. airliners to assist in the evacuation. That's kind of different. Now, the problem for Joe Biden is that he really has not covered himself in glory during the course of all this. He really hasn't. And I'm not saying that out of animus to Joe Biden. I'm not saying it because I oppose Joe Biden. I'm just saying from a layman's perspective, he just really was ridiculously over-optimistic. And I don't know whether that was listening to his generals or who, but he was over-optimistic about the ability of the U.S. to get not just its own citizens, but citizens, Afghan citizens, who had assisted the U.S. effort, getting them out of the country. It has not gone, and I don't think anybody can argue this, it has absolutely not gone according to plan. He says the evacuations are showing significant progress. Not sure his assurances are going to be enough to right the ship. Now he's going to have to set the tone for future relationships with the new government. They will come to him with some requests, most likely for the release of Afghan assets in foreign banks. Can he actually extract real concessions from the Taliban? We'll see. I think one of the things we have to look at there is that asking the Taliban to fundamentally change their religious outlook, their fealty to Sharia law, that's a no-go. That's not going to happen. The Taliban, you see, do not believe in Western democracy. They absolutely do not. Now, they got run out of Afghanistan back in 2001, but now they're back. And as I said in a previous episode, this vindicates their religious beliefs as far as they're concerned. That's why I'm really kind of skeptical about the fact that they're going to, or about you know, the assurances they give that they're going to actually give women more freedoms and some of the other things that they are promising, I think, to get the American monkey off their back once and for all. Can he extract, can Joe Biden extract those kinds of concessions from the Taliban? We'll see. In the meantime, I'm reminded of a poem that was made into a song about the French resistance during World War II. I heard it done by the great Leonard Cohen. It's called a partisan. And I think it applies to the good people resisting the tyranny of the Taliban. Now, without our help. The verse goes like this. An old woman gave us shelter, kept us hidden in the garret. Then the soldiers came. She died without a whisper. Coming up, remember all those states that cut off extra benefits to their citizens, saying it would drive people back to work? How'd that turn out for them? Stay with us. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Ryan. Welcome back to The Intersection. 
It wasn't too long ago that some states began ending expanded federal unemployment benefits. 26 in all, only one not run by a Republican, and they argued that the extra money was keeping workers at home when some employers were struggling to hire. The governors and employers said once the benefits were gone, people would rush back to their jobs, back to the same jobs they had before the pandemic hit. Well, it hasn't exactly turned out that way. But to understand the mechanics, you have to look at what happened to the workforce during the depth of the pandemic. 20 million workers lost their jobs in just two months, and the unemployment rate hit almost 15%. Now, three quarters of those jobs have come back, and the latest unemployment figures stand at 5.4%. At the end of last month, 9 million Americans were receiving payments through two federal programs. Those programs are set to expire on their own next month unless Congress extends them, and that does not appear likely. President Biden has called on states with high unemployment rates to use separate federal funds to continue those programs, but nobody knows what states will actually follow his advice. Regardless, data from the Labor Department paints an interesting picture of those states that cut federal benefits early versus those that didn't. It shows that states that cut benefits experience job growth similar to or even slightly lower than the states that maintain them. Ironically, this has been the rule in the leisure and hospitality sectors where employers have been complaining the loudest. Leisure and hospitality, by the way, took the biggest hit during the early days of the pandemic because obviously there were lockdowns and a lot of those leisure and hospitality outlets simply could not function. Now, to be fair, there was a 4% difference in employment in favor of states that cut benefits. Yet that does not tell the whole story. Of the 1.1 million people they studied who lost benefits, only 145,000 had found jobs by the beginning of this month. And one thing that doesn't always get talked about, when people have less money to spend, obviously, they cut back on spending. That means less money going into the economy. You might argue that people sometimes need a push to get them back into the job market, and a potential loss of benefits provides that push. Yet, as we've talked about before, there are numbers of workers who have decided to step back and seriously assess their jobs, their income, their working conditions, etc. These benefits have given workers unintended leverage with their employers. Some have managed to negotiate better wages and working conditions. Some have even been able to opt for a hybrid in-office work-from-home schedule that provides them with more flexibility. That's especially single mothers. All that being said, the labor market in 2021 appears to be a volatile one. Even forecasters aren't sure where and how employment will increase. The surge of the Delta variant of COVID-19 means things could change drastically in the fall and winter. However you look at it, these federal benefits have allowed millions of American families to keep their heads above water during a severe and unpredictable pandemic. How about we at least 
give some credit for that. Next up, R. Kelly on trial in Brooklyn. He was acquitted back in 2008. Will this second bite of the apple put him behind bars for a long time? This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. Crooner R. Kelly is on trial in Brooklyn Federal Court, and the testimony thus far seems to indicate Kelly and his entourage lived in a strange, parallel universe of rules for his sexual conquests that included getting permission from him for the most mundane acts, including going to the bathroom. Who has to ask permission to go to the bathroom? Unless, like, you're in elementary school or something. The prosecution in this case is trying to construct a narrative that puts R. Kelly at the head of a criminal enterprise of managers, bodyguards, and others who assisted in procuring women and underage girls for sex and pornography, and that the enterprise crossed state lines. That's what allows the feds to get involved. Now, you may remember back in 2008, Kelly was acquitted on child pornography charges but no accuser testified against him in that case. In this case, at least six women are scheduled to take the stand, one of whom already has. What's made the trial fascinating for me is the testimony regarding the late vocalist Aaliyah. Kelly married her when she was either 15 or 16, depending on who you talk to. Not long before that marriage took place, I interviewed Aaliyah just as her fame was reaching its apex. Back in those days, it wasn't uncommon for an artist to have one or more people in tow for these radio conversations. And what they'd do, they'd set it up kind of like a round robin thing. If there were four urban stations in a market, one by one, an artist would go to each one, sit for about 15 minutes, answer a few questions, sometimes mundane, sometimes not so much. I hope mine weren't. And then they'd move on to the next one. And they do that from city to city and from town to town. In Aaliyah's case, R. Kelly escorted her into the studio. I simply figured he was a mentor to the young lady. Obviously, I knew who he was, but he was just like a famous mentor. One thing I noticed right off the bat Every time I asked Aaliyah a question, she would look to her right where he was sitting, as if to ask whether it was okay to answer. At the time, I have to be honest, I didn't think too much of it. After all, I'd interviewed dozens of artists before, and many of them were nervous about answering questions on the radio. Looking back now, I wonder if the looks she gave him were based at least in part on fear fear that he would disapprove of something she said. It wasn't long after the interview that news of her marriage went public, and of course, with that came the news that she was underage. The damage to Kelly 20-odd years later is the allegation that he had her birth certificate doctor to show she was of age at the time they got married, and it's been brought up in court now, 20 years after Aaliyah's very tragic death. The first accuser to testify against him 
was Geronda Johnson Pace. She told the jury that Kelly knew she was underage when they first had sex in 2009. It should be said that R. Kelly has denied all the allegations against him. Yet it's tough to figure out the difference between Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, a few others, and R. Kelly. There are others who use power and money to exploit and oppress women. Thankfully, times have changed to the point where women actually are taken much more seriously than they were a quarter century ago. If R. Kelly thought he could impose rules on those women in his orbit, he must know by now that prison has its own rules. After all, he's been incarcerated in Chicago and now in New York. And even if he's acquitted in the current case, he's still facing charges in both Illinois and Minnesota. As with other sexual miscreants, R. Kelly's alleged conduct is inexplicable to me. Okay, now, again, I consider myself pretty much a man of the world. I've seen a lot. I've seen people do a lot of stuff in my lifetime. I'm not a kid. But this kind of alleged conduct, and again, Kelly is innocent until proven guilty. But even so, this alleged conduct is baffling to me. I mean, first of all, it was kind of a uh, public secret that R. Kelly liked young girls. You know, it's something in the media business, you know, you, you travel around with people who are involved in records, particularly what they used to call the record business. And you hear stories about different guys. This one didn't want anybody to speak to him. This one didn't want it this. This one didn't want that. And R. Kelly, and again, this was all rumored. I had no actual evidence of any of it. But the word on L. R. Kelly was he liked young girls. And certainly, Aaliyah proved that. And the word is now, all these years after her passing, that she thought she was pregnant. And that's why R. Kelly decided to marry her. And this is some Machiavellian stuff, I have to tell you. He decided to marry her allegedly so that she wouldn't be able to testify in court that he knew she was underage and that he had her birth certificate doctored to show she was of age. Now, I have to say, what would make a rational human being conduct themselves in this way? And you can say the same thing about the... Jeffrey Epstein's, the, uh, the uh, Harvey Weinstein's, the Bill Cosby's. You can always say, like, what makes them act this way? Is it a sense of entitlement? Is it, you know, the power that comes with making a boatload of money? What is it? It's baffling to me. Is it any wonder, however, that some women take guilty until proven innocent as a given when it comes to dealing with men. Does that surprise anyone? Now, before we leave you, much as it pains me, I have to talk about the state of Texas. Again, God help me. It's vote-suppressing, anti-mask and vaccine-mandating governor, Greg Abbott, tested positive for COVID. Ironically, he'd been double vaccinated. 
But he isn't the one, bad as he is, that needs to be called out. It's his second-in-command, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. This lowlife had the nerve to attribute Texas's skyrocketing infection and hospitalization rates to, guess who, black people. He told a Fox News host, and I'm quoting here, the biggest group in most states are African Americans who have not been vaccinated, end quote. Not only was that a racist statement, it's also factually incorrect. When questioned a day later, he proceeded to double down on this lunacy, complete and utter lunacy. Needless to say, he was roundly criticized by Texans with sense, both black and white, just plain folks and elected officials. I've asked before how people this ignorant get elected to office in cities, towns, and states across America. As of now, I still don't have a clue. I do know this, whether it's Abbott and Patrick in Texas, Taylor Greene in Georgia, Boebert in Colorado, or DeSantis in Florida, these people need to be beaten at the polls. And the Democratic Party needs to stand up, call them out at every opportunity, and mobilize. I know it's not going to be easy to beat a Marjorie Taylor Greene in a state that's been in a congressional district, that is, that's been molded so somebody like her would win, or a Matt Gates in Florida, or a Boebert in Colorado. But believe me, it can be done. I remember the late Maynard Jackson interviewing him and hearing him say, he was talking about the presidential elections, he said, the Democrats need to have a 50-state plan, a 50-state scheme to win elections. And that involved never conceding, ever, that a state was hopeless, that you could not elect a Democrat in that particular, whether it was Georgia, whether it was uh, Texas, other places in, in the Deep South. Maynard Jackson said it was time to mobilize. And I think he was right. And as far as these people being beaten at the polls, this nation's future is truly at stake. I would ask, as we conclude, that you keep the Reverend Jesse Jackson and his wife Jackie in your prayers. Both have contracted COVID, and they're not young people. Reverend Jackson is 79. His wife is 77. His wife is a jewel of a person, by the way. I've interviewed him going back 40 some odd years. Always had a good word for me. Last time I saw him in New York, we had a big hug together. Always, always a person I have admired and looked up to. So I would ask, as I asked for your prayers for Haiti in the last episode, that you pray for Jesse and Jackie Jackson. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.